Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Privilege to be together this morning. My name is Gabe Phillips. If we have not met and had the privilege, or if you have had not had the privilege to meet me yet, um, can I say? Uh, <laughs> I'm the husband of a, an amazing lady called Fiona, um, uh, and we've got a little two and a bit year old daughter called Olivia Grace, who is feisty, who's beautiful, who's a redhead. And then also, uh, we have got a three week old little man called Benjamin Asher. And uh, I'd love to introduce you to him. And uh, I asked my wife if I could bring him today because I really wanted to do the Lion King moments. But um, she said, grow up, Gabe, grow up. So, um, uh, so I bought a photo. So there we go. Uh, it's good to have one. It's really helpful to have a responsible person in the family because our baby is still alive. People say, how, how are you guys doing? We're like, baby's alive. We're alive. We're doing good. So it's really, really cool. But just to let you know, that photo, he's not a redhead. So um, please pray for me. I need to find courage in my heart. But I'm sure God will use him as well. So it's good. But it's really, really cool. No, all jokes aside, we are in love with this little man. And we are a family of four, which still freaks my mind out. But uh, that God would trust me with some children. But it's really, really cool. But with all that aside, it's really good to be together. Anyway, let's dive into the word this morning. We are finishing up. Whoa. Nice, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you try that again. We are finishing up our Colossians series this morning. If you have not been with us the last several weeks, we've been journeying through a New Testament letter, which has got four chapters uh, in, uh, long, and it's been a profound journey as we've been uh, dissecting and opening up the Word of God and allowing it to, to change us. And I pray you've enjoyed that journey. But this morning, I want to bring it to culmination before we un- unleash the sevens on us next week, which if you, uh, if you want to be in church, make sure you don't miss next Sunday. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're so excited to, to see what God has got to say through four different preachers next week, seven minutes each. It's going to be electric. It's going to be fun. You don't want to miss that. But this morning, you just get one preacher. I apologize. And I have a lot longer than seven minutes. I'm so sorry. Uh, cancel your lunch plans. No, jokes aside, but we are reading this letter, and I want to land this, 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 this letter just by referencing the last verse of this letter. It won't be on the screen, but if, if you want to know the pricey of it, basically Paul, in, in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, this letter is written in my own handwriting. Then he says this profound statement, remember my chains. He re- says, remember my chains. And it's the end of this, this profound letter, but I love the fact that Paul, in his, in his wisdom, at the end of proclaiming all these mysteries and this beautiful, the wisdom and revelation of Jesus and fighting for the freedom of their souls, he lands by saying, basically, remember, I'm in prison. It's a profound statement, and actually, maybe you, you, if you read the letter, it probably just seems like a throwaway line at the end, but I think it's so profound that he bookends this letter by telling us that this letter was written from prison. Let me say it's a letter that uh, you and I, we probably open up our Bibles. If, you, if, you, if you're really spiritual, you'll sit on your couch with a nice warm cup of coffee and a, and a nice highlight as you take notes with Bethel or Hillsong or music of choice in the background. It's just wonderful and special. Or you, if you're a little less godly and uh, you feel you open up your phone, your U version, and in between series or in, as you fast forward on catch up the adverts quickly, you catch up with a few chapters of the Bible just to placate the U version's reading app daily devotionals. Maybe that's you. I'm, I'm also there as well. Don't worry. Sometimes it happens. But we, we read these things in isolation in our comfort zones, but we, it sometimes eludes us that the fact that this letter was written in a prison cell. 
And Paul wants to remind us of that. That actually, he wrote this letter with festering wounds. This letter was written to us by a man who probably hadn't been washed in days. The last time water probably touched his skin was when he had been shipwrecked on his way to Rome, on his way to prison. This is a man writing it to us, writing it from a cold, hard floor who has been falsely abused and vilified. And at the end he says, remember my chains. And if you are here for the first time, and this is all you know about Colossians so far, is it's of a man from prison writing, remember my chains. You'd be forgiven to think that maybe the preceding chapters were full of a man who is angry, who is frustrated at the injustice of the system. Maybe it's four chapters filled with political propaganda saying, Caesar must fall, hashtag. Maybe it's a letter that, if you read just that last little bit, maybe it's of a man sulking or a man who's, not, who's angry, saying this is not fair, life's not fair, suck it up, guys. The problem with that is that that's a false understanding of the, the text because actually he says, remember my chains then to remind them because actually the tone of the letter is so far removed from what we would imagine it to be. The tone of the letter is one of a man who's full of delight and wonder and victory and joy. And there's something profound about that because as I read this letter, I read it from a man who's in prison, who has every right to complain, and yet his heart is singing with the highest level of joy. And when I read that, I go, I want to learn from this man. I want to learn from this man. And, that's, and the whole understanding of that, I want to land this series by titling this little sermon today with the one phrase to say, how to have joy in a prison. I want to call this sermon, how to have joy in a prison. And uh, let me say it this way. Please note that I did not say how to have happiness in the prison. Dramatic pause. Why do I mean that? Maybe semantics. Maybe like what's the difference? They, hey, you can just right-click cinnamon, happiness, joy. They, they, they can move, move in between the, each other. No, 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 no. Happiness is a temporary emotion that can be stolen from you in an instant. No one knows this better than sharks and protea supporters. No one knows that the emotion of happiness is with us and then it's gone in a moment. Happiness is as fleeting as the petrol price every month. It's up and then it's down. Happiness is as fleeting as ESCOM's load-shedding promises. Because we nervously await what is coming. I'm not saying that with any prophetic edge. Don't worry. But I want to say with a certainty that when life is hard, when sleep is little, amen to that, when there's pain, when the phone call rings and there isn't good news on the other side, I want to tell you there is soul-satisfying joy that the book of Colossians is telling us is an offer for everybody who would believe in Jesus. Soul-satisfying joy. And I don't want, don't want you to leave this room today with any other idea of what this book is about. This book is a guide to our joy, no matter what prison, no matter what state of life, no matter what circumstance we're in, that there is joy upon joy upon joy that is available to you and I. And I want to lead us into it this morning. So let's pray, and we'll get into the Word. Father, this morning, my prayer is simple and concise, but deep. For my own heart and for the hearts of my friends here, God, would you set us free from lesser pursuits, from lesser pleasures that promise much but deliver little, and Father God, would we know how to see and savor you as our treasure and as our joy that will go deep down, down, down into our souls, will never be stolen from us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Paul is hammering on this, fighting for the Colossian church's joy above all things. Not their happiness, not just superficial, not just a light encouragement letter. He's fighting for their eternal joy in their souls. A man from prison is writing this, and he's doing this in two ways, all the way through the book. And the first way is this, for us to know how to have joy in a prison, I want to tell you we have to know that Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme. Years ago, I went to university in Durban. Some of you are like, um, really? Wow. Learned man. To that, I'd say learned. It's pronounced learned. Which is not true. That's a joke from The Simpsons. I apologize. Um, let's move on. But I went to university. That is, has nothing to do with what I'm saying. I really apologize. This is, uh, stay focused, Gabe. But I went to university in Durban, and uh, we had just come alive to my friends and I. We come alive to Jesus Christ in a radical way, and we wanted to do something for Jesus on the campus of UKZN that would, would put a, a, a stake in the ground. We'll be able to preach the gospel, and we thought, what is the best way we can do this? How can we get the attention of of the people in this in this campus? How can we grab them the attention and show them Jesus? And we came up with this revelation, this amazing prophetic insight that the way to do it was by hiring a yogi bear suit. True story. Seemed wise at the time. But what we did in the stifling Durban heat was we, uh, drew, we drew lots and one of us had to put on the yogi bear suit and we attached a sign to the front of this bear suit saying, free food and lecture venue 12 at lunchtime. Now if you know students, there's two things they love. Yogi bear, no that's not true. There's one thing they love, free food. And uh, this, we walked around and we disrupted lectures, we disrupted uh, conversations as everyone saw us. And before selfies were even a thing, people were taking selfies with the yogi bear. And then the word was going through the campus, free food is going to be there at lecture venue 12 at lunchtime. And at lunchtime, like the Pied Piper, they all followed the yogi bear and this room was packed to the hilt. I would estimate over 200 people who had come eager for free food. And there was, it was a shameless bait and switch. I apologized for it. Years after, so I said, Lord, please forgive me for this, but my motives were pure. What we did was we had tables laden with food that you could, that would get any student's mouth salivating. But as I said, before you tuck in, took off the head. Surprise, there's a human in here. And then we said, before you tuck in, I would love to say a few words. And what we did was then we also did something profound and, and really deeply religious and, and edifying, was we played a video clip uh, from the, the, the prophetic voice of Will Ferrell <laughs> and the movie Talladega Nights. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. But there's a scene where, and it's, it's not prophetic in any sense, just in case you're wondering. It's when they're discussing over dinner tables, this comedy, this, this quite gross out comedy where they're talking about how they view Jesus. And they say, no, I prefer my Jesus as the baby Jesus, dear baby Jesus. And, and they go on, it's this parody and it gets more and more extreme about how they view Jesus. And I showed it and everyone laughed and everyone's trying to work out the connection between this and free food. I said, before we move on from this moment, let me tell you. Maybe you're here today and there's different, many different options of how you can view Jesus. And we work through those very quickly. Jesus is teacher. Jesus is good man. Jesus is this. I said, today I want to take the, every other obstacle out the way that this is who Jesus is. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus is the only way. And he's supreme above all other religions, all other thoughts, all other ways. And he is the only way that you can be saved. And I just want to declare that. And if you need to respond, and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unapologetically. Can I tell you, at the end of that, three things happened. All the food was eaten. Many people came to salvation that day, and we got to pray with many people, but many people were offended at us 
Because in a pluralistic university, a university of thought and reason and understanding, they said, how dare you come up with the simplicity to declare that Jesus is the only way. That, that, and that by that notion, you're tearing down every other thought. And I remember that moment being quite wrestling with that and saying, sheesh, I didn't, want to, didn't do that to become unpopular. But I had to settle my heart that actually, is it true or not? I tell that story because actually the, the one preacher once said the statement speaking about the Apostle Paul. He said, wherever Paul went and he preached, revival or riots broke out. People either gave their lives to Jesus or tried to kill him. And the preacher went on and said, whenever I go to preach, they serve tea. Something's wrong here. A lady, Dorothy Sayers, wrote this amazing phrase about Jesus. She said, As in our modern era, we have very efficiently paired or cut the claws of the Lion of Judah, certifying him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious ladies. Taken this beautiful, this magnificent and majestic Jesus and dumbed him down for our taste, for our appetites, for our culture, just to fit in our corner so we know what to do with Jesus. The Jesus of Christmas time, the Jesus as a baby, the Jesus meek and mild, the Jesus that, that promises peace but never challenges us. The Jesus on the side, well, I want to say that Jesus, if that's your image of him, he will not sustain you in the day of trouble. Because Paul was fighting for something different, and Paul was bringing into in, in a culture, the Colossian culture, that had all these other options. That Jesus was the one on the side. But actually, let, let's not let's not exclude the Roman gods and their mythical way of thought. Let's not exclude the Jewish believers who've got this different way of living and ascetism and, and practices. Let's try and all include it together. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. If you go that way, you'll you'll land being a people devoid of joy, devoid of hope, and devoid of power. So Paul's fighting for us. And so what he says, he says, Christ is supreme. And we've tread this ground already, but I want to re-go over it to remind our fickle hearts of this, that he is saying in this text again and again from chapter 1 to 4 that Christ is supreme above all creation. Colossians 1 verse 15 to 16 says this. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Speaking of Jesus. For through him God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made things we can see and the things we cannot see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He says, basically in a nutshell, he says, Jesus existed before it all. He wasn't just a, maybe your thoughts process, how that be? He, he came as a man in a certain date. Yes, 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 but before his name was Jesus, he was known in Genesis 1 as the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was before all, and the Word is, precedes all, though Jesus has always been, and he will always be. And that statement alone, that statement that Jesus is before all, is hugely controversial. It's hugely controversial because in one statement, Jesus pre-existed all things and through him all things came to life. Right there in that one statement, we've said this again, but dualism and all other philosophies and isms and thoughts of man get blown out of the water with one statement. By saying Jesus preceded everything else, the thought process of dualism, that there's this, this big battle between Satan and God and there's other, no, this big cosmic battle is blown out the water because actually God preceded Satan. Satan's a created being. He's above him. It's not like this tight match, who will win, who will win? No, Christ wins. It blows out the water, polytheism, where there's no other gods and, and the different ways. No, why? Because at the beginning, there was no other gods present. It was him. Existentialism, which is this way of thought, as Nietzsche said this way, as a man thinks in his head that he is, you know, that we have the power and ability, but if we just get our thinking right, even it's a modern day way of preaching even. People say, you know, if you just think yourself happy, 
Well, actually, you and I do not have the uh, power to do that. Why? Because we are created beings with a creator. So someone else besides you has ultimate authority over your life. And I, so this one statement blows up pantheism, which is all things were created by God. Not that, 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 you know, no, no, no. In the statement of all lead, roads lead to worm, in one statement, Paul is saying, when everyone in this day and age is saying, you know, live your truth. Your truth, my truth, even if they're different, they're okay. It's real to you. In that one statement, he's making a claim that there's an ultimate truth above your truth or my truth. It's controversial. We can't just skip over that, but it's so profound because actually what, is, what is he's saying here, basically in a nutshell, he's saying, making it applicable for lives, that Jesus is not just content to moving into our hearts and telling our idols to move up. Jesus is not saying, actually, I'm content. Jesus, I give my life to you. You take the back room because I still have got sex, relationships, uh, my, my anger issue, my fears, my insecurities. I'm just going to move them up and you live alongside them. Thanks, Jesus. No, 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 no. Jesus says, no, I'm above all creation. I'm supreme and I'm the Lord of all. And this is huge. Isaiah 40, verse 12 to 17 says this about Jesus. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor is animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Now, maybe read that and you go, you're speaking about joy? <laughs> Yes, I am. And why should this idea of who he is, that he's supreme above all creation, put joy into our hearts? Because in one statement, it reminds me of this great truth that I am not at the center. Let me say it again, sir, ma'am, you are not at the center. You do not have to sustain all of this. You see, the religion of the day, right now, no matter where you look, you just have to open up social media and see it in glaring, in a glaring light that the religion of the day is something called narcissism. Narcissism means staring at yourself in the mirror and saying, I'm wonderful, and dressing up your own self. Can I tell you, narcissism is exhausting. I don't know, maybe I'm the first, I hope I'm not the first one to put out my hand and say this, I'm out. The treadmill of performance and image management is exhausting and will steal your joy. My good friend Brad put on Facebook this week something profound, a little statement saying that actually I wish my life would, would, would be a, a, a similar representation of how good it is on Facebook. Because I tell you, I put up image after image of me with my beautiful little boy sleeping. <laughs> Can I tell you, he's got colic and he's up every hour on the hour. So if you want to get hold of me, I'm available at 2, 3, 4, 5 in the morning. Not taking many photos of that guy. Here he is, screaming his lungs out. <laughs> it's three in the morning. No one does that because we're curating this image of ourselves. We want to make it look, look better. And we do that work and it's tiring and it's exhausting. And we manage relationships just so I look a little bit better because I'm at the center. Here's the great news. When he's supreme, I'm not. Oh, I can breathe. The sun rises and sets at his command. 
The waves come in and come out at His command. He sustains it by the word of His power. And you see, this is the problem. The more and more advanced or advanced, I put in quotations, that we get as a society, it seems the more and more medicated we need to be to cope with it. As the years have gone and we've got become more sophisticated, we've had to get more medication to manage our sophistication because it's too much for us. Something's wrong. I want to tell you, Jesus is not nervous. He's not in recession. He's not anxious about your situation, your life, going, I don't know what to do. He's not stressed out. So I want to say to you and to I, are you exhausted? Are you heavy burdened and you're laid and you say, I can't do this anymore? I tell you, your solution to joy is not kick out, not go to a retreat, not find even a counselor. Those things help, but I want to tell you, the solution to your joy is bow your knee to him. Get out of the center. Get off the throne and allow him to take the center place again because he is supreme. He's not just supreme above creation. We've said this again. He's also supreme above all power. Said it, this letter was written in AD 62, the very next year. Yeah, AD 62, he writes this letter to a people who are drunk on their self-importance. We are wonderful. We can worship Jesus. We can worship Yeshua. We can also, uh, and, and Yahweh. We can also worship Zeus on the other side. We can have all of them together. The festivals all mixed into one because we're so clever and advanced. And Paul says that's going to lead to chaos. And actually, in that moment, this letter, remember my chains. Yeah, yeah, Paul. <sighs> he goes on and on and on. A year later, AD 63, a man named Nero unleashes a state sponsor's uh, reign of terror on Christians that would make ISIS look like Teletubbies. We've said this again and again, but Nero comes against Christians and pours out this wave of terrorism where people are burned alive. There are some of them are sewn into skins of wild animals and then fed to dogs. Others were crucified. Martyrs were exhibited in the circus with Nero presiding as a charioteer over them for entertainment. He co-hosted garden parties where Christians were waxed in tar and then set alight to light the, the parties and to provide light-hearted entertainment. So brothers and sisters, and Nero with his power saying, Caesar is Lord, and he says, I'm going to crush anyone who says different. And the people are crying out, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? But here's the great news. I say it again and again to my fickle heart. Rome rose, but Rome fell. Alexander the Great rose, but he fell. The Russian Empire rose, but it fell. Every empire you can think of in the world has risen, but has fallen. Kings have come and they've gone, but Jesus still stands supreme. They try to crush him. They try to crucify him. They try to silence his followers, but he still stands as the name above all names that captures generations and presidents alike. Names have just become paraphrased. Just a little light name, Augustus Caesar, just a little dot on the uh, Bible, just a little dot. Nero not even features in the scriptures, but we have a name above all names. And the great news is he says, and my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against them. This is the news, the power of the gospel. And why I say all this, what has this got to do with our joy? Well, sir, ma'am, our president, our economy, your boss, your spouse, your kids, your friends, do not hold your joy. If we're wanting joy, if you want happiness, put your kids at the center. They'll make you happy when things are good, and when they disappoint you, oh, you will crash. Put your wife at the center. Put your husband at the center. Put your country at the center. Put your sports team at the center. But actually, he's supreme above all powers. He holds our joy. He's supreme above all things. But secondly and finally this morning, 
Paul doesn't just leave it there. He also goes on and says he's not just supreme above all things, creation and powers, rulers and authorities. He says Christ is supreme, but he's also sufficient. What does that mean? Christ is more than enough for you. Colossians 1 verse 20 says this, he made peace, speaking of Jesus again, Jesus made peace with everything, everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now in Christendom we say the blood of Jesus and, and maybe if you've been in a church a long time, that phrase just rolls off the tongue. Sing it as easily, put a tune to it, oh the blood of Jesus, it's like nice, easy saying, it's lovely, it's we have, don't defeather it, don't de minimize the blood of Jesus, because actually, if you think about that, the major theme of the Bible is the sacrificial blood of God. Should, should bring us to our knees. In, in, a, in one way, should freak us out. But actually, the Bible tells us, I've said this again and again, this book is not a manual to our happiness. This book is not a guide, a roadmap to life or a book, uh, the basic instructions before leaving earth. It sounds good but, and it's helpful at some levels, but at the very essence, this book is not primarily about you nursing your happiness, nursing your needs. No, come and just go get a scripture. It'll pep you up for another week. No, this book is about a Savior named Jesus. And when we lessen it to any level, then we start diluting the power of it. And we're settling for something less. But actually, somebody once said that actually, that if you cut the Bible, it bleeds the blood of Jesus. This book is about, from start to finish, is about the sacrificial work of Jesus that would make peace with everything. Everything in heaven and under, on earth. That Christ is sufficient from page one to the very end. How do I know this? Let me explain it this way. In the book of Genesis, we come front to, face to face with a story about a man named Abraham and his only son Isaac. Abraham had waited for years for that son Isaac, waited for years. The promise of God said, I will give you a son, I'll give you a son. He waited and eventually Isaac came and he was amazing and Isaac was the joy of his father. He was so proud and so happy. He watched his son grow up and he said, Isaac, my boy. And then God comes and says, listen, Abraham, I made you a promise that was more than just your son. Actually, I need you to sacrifice, take your son, your only son, take him up a mountain and sacrifice him. Commentators, people read this text, myself included, sometimes go, what God is that? That sounds barbaric. But when you understand, when you dig a little deeper, God is not after Abraham's son. He's after his joy. He's after generation upon generation, the ultimate joy above all things. Don't settle for just the here and now. There's someone more supreme and more sufficient who will sustain you. So Abraham takes in faith, takes his son, I'm paraphrasing for sake of time, takes his son all the way up the Mount Moriah, takes his son, sac puts, ties him down onto the altar, and his boy says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? He says, don't worry, son, the Lord will provide. You can imagine, he didn't say it with probably much courage. He probably did it with a croaking voice, a creaking voice, and nervousness in his heart, the, the, the Lord will provide. Desperately trusting that God you'll provide. But then he takes the flint that was made to impale his son. And he's about to plunge into the very heart of his son and kill his own son in response to God. And as he's about to bring it down, the voice of God booms out and says, Abraham, stay your hand. Now that I see that you trust me and you've put me at the center, he says, you know what? There's a lamb in the thicket. I want you to go get that ram. I want you to come and take your boy off the altar and sacrifice that lamb on his behalf. And it's the first time we see this theology called substitution in the Bible. When one man gets set free because one lamb dies. 
So we see one man get set free for one lamb. But the book of the, the whole Bible bleeds the blood of Jesus, the blood of sacrifices all over every page. You keep reading. In the book of Exodus, there's a story where the people of, of Israel have been taken into captivity. They're in Egypt under the, the, the power and the might of the, the Egyptian uh, pharaohs and the people. And they've been crushed for 400 years, crying out, How long, O oh Lord? How long? And God, in a, a miraculous way, you can go read the, the narrative, comes against the gods of Egypt in force and in power with the plagues. Ten plagues in a row, showing his might, showing his power, bringing, and showing that he's supreme, bringing Egypt to his knees. And at the very crux of it all, he says, now tonight, I'm going to show you that I'm not just supreme, I'm sufficient, and I'm going to set you free. And, Israel, and Moses says to the people, guys, we're going to be set free tonight. And they go, yes! He says, this is how it's going to happen. The angel of the Lord is tonight going to pass over every single home, and, if, and, and, and he's going to kill every firstborn son of every family. The Israelites, no, 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 no. What do, what do you mean? He's going to kill every firstborn. He says, he's going to kill every firstborn, but there's a way we can be spared. They said, tell us, Moses. Tell us, Moses. We've seen the mighty hand of God in the plagues. We know God is powerful. How can we be spared? And he said, this is how it's going to happen. He says, he's going to take the blood of a lamb. It's unblemished. It's spotless. It's pure. And you're going to take that blood. You're going to take that blood, coat it on the door frame of your home. And when the angel of the Lord comes, he'll kill the firstborn in every home that does not have the blood. But if he sees the blood, he'll pass over it. I can imagine if, uh, think of my children. If that was the instruction, I knew this was going to happen. I'd say, Moses, that sounds simple, buddy. Can you go back and find out some more details? Is there a prayer we're supposed to pray before it? Do, I need a, is there, do we have to set our, our home in a certain direction? Do we need to do a little bit of a rain dance? What do we need to do? Because if I'm going to fight for my kids to, to survive the night... It can't be as simple as just kill an animal, put blood. Moses like, that, that's all I got. That's all I got. Guys, I'm sorry. I, w- I wish I had more. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've sent many messages, but it's just our blue ticks, blue ticks, blue ticks from God. He's not sending any more information. It's just the blood. Guys say, all right, let's do it. And they do that that night. And I can imagine that night as the night goes cold. And the people of Israel sitting in their homes in Goshen, they're sitting there holding on to kids, calling their kids. No, 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 no time for games. Come, come here, come here. Come here, bring them close and holding them and just praying and praying, saying, God, please may that blood be enough. Please may Moses have got that right. And they hear the whispering death of the angel of the Lord going across the valley. And the angel of the Lord goes over every Egyptian home that does not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And they hear screams echoing over the valley. Ah! As families run in and find their their child has been killed. Their child has been killed. Their child has been killed. And as he screams, we go up the valley and the Israelite homes holding onto their children going, please God, please God, please God, please God, please, not my baby, not my baby. And they hear the angel of the Lord getting closer and closer. And then the angel of the Lord comes, stops at their home, sees the blood, and he moves on, leaving them spared. In that moment, we see the power, a word called propitiation, a fancy theological term saying that the wrath of God is turned aside passed over because of the blood. In that instance, we see in Genesis 22, one lamb was sacrificed for one man. In Exodus 12, we see one lamb that was enough for one family. The journey continues in the wilderness as the Israelites get set free from Egypt. They go on a journey from the wilderness to the promised land. And on this journey, God tells them a way that they can have their sins absolved, their sin, their relationship with Him intact is once a year. They're supposed to come and bring a lamb that's spotless and blemish and, and blame-free, uh, unblemished. And they bring it to the high priest, and the high priest will come and lay his hands on it, and, uh, and he'll put the sins of the nation into it, and then he'll slaughter that animal. 
slaughter the animal, take the blood, and walk into the, 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 the holy of holies and the tabernacle and spread the blood there and, and have the forgiveness of sins imputed for the people's past sins for the past year. And then for the prayer of faith for the, the year, because they know we're sinful people, we're going to mess up again. They bring a second lamb, and they get that lamb, and he comes, he prays, puts his hands on it, imputes their future sins onto it. And he drives that lamb into the wilderness, out to the back of the tabernacle, to go and die of natural causes. We've worked this through before, but the profound thing is there, that second lamb is called the scapegoat. It's where we get our word scapegoat. That the one lamb one lamb dies for the sins of the people, their past sins, and one lamb dies for their future sins, goes out into the wilderness, gets cast out for their future sins. And we see in this moment, Genesis 22, one lamb for one man, one lamb for one family. Here we see one lamb for a whole nation. It's the narrative of the Bible. And you keep reading and try and make sense of this all, and you get to the book of John, we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist looks out and he sees Jesus coming out of the wilderness. And as he looks up, he sees Jesus. The first thing, recorded thing we see of John saying about Jesus is he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One lamb for one man. One lamb for one family. One lamb for one nation. One lamb for the world. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this moment. But I want to tell you, that as I read Scripture, the blood of Jesus is on every page of the Bible. The question I want to ask you and I is, is it on every page of our hearts? The blood of Jesus is supreme on every page of the Bible, sufficient on every page of the Bible. Is the blood of Jesus on every page of your lives, every broken moment, every painful moment, every sinful moment? Have you allowed the blood of Jesus to be sufficient enough for you? I want to land with this to tell you that actually the scriptures tell us that Jesus, the Bible, when the book of Peter says that Christ was crucified, was slain, the lamb slain before the creation of the world. I don't know what you do with that, but so profound that actually Peter tells us that Jesus, does, yes, he died before us. Our very eyes, we saw him crucified, he says in the book of Acts. Jesus died. He was a man. He died. It was a real, not a, not a metaphorical death. He died. But Peter also says it didn't just happen in the physical. He says in the spiritual, his death happened before the creation of the world. Why? Because Christ is supreme above all. And actually his death was not in reaction to our sin. It was actually given in, in sufficient replacement for us before we were even born. He is enough for you. He is enough. And I love that statement that actually died before the creation of the world. Why? For me that means that actually his blood is sufficient for whatever has happened in your past. The past horrors, the past fears, the abuse, the pain, the rejection, the fear, your sin, the debauchery. His blood is enough to cover whatever happened in the past because he was crucified before the creation of the world. Revelations ends with this statement. It tells us the big culmination says that this is how it will all end. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Before, there's the blood. At the very end, when all of us are in our graves and risen to life at the day of judgment, there's the blood of Jesus still. So your future fears, your future anxieties, your insecurities, what will I do? Where will I live? What will happen with the government? What will happen with my kids? How will I make them, how will I provide for them? How will they ever get free of this addiction? What will I do in this? All your future fears covered by the blood. It's sufficient. And here's the greatest news of all right now past, future, but right now I tell you, Jesus says that He is the God who walks into your prison right now. 
the prison that you're maybe the prison of your marriage, the prison that you feel fears, anxieties about, the prison of your relationships, the prison of your shame, your guilt, your sin, your failure, your fear, your doubt, your aggression, your anger. He walks into that thing that has confined you and defined you and held you. And he says, actually, I walk in this and say, I am supreme over it and I'm enough for it. I'm sufficient for it. The blood of Jesus on every single page will you allow it to be on every single page of your life. Can we close our eyes in this moment, please? Right now, I really believe there are people here who've done church, who've done religion, but have not bowed their knee to Jesus and allowed Him to be Lord of their life. What riled up Nero was the fact that there was a phrase that was common in the day, propaganda, political propaganda, whenever the, the Roman entourage would come into your town, you would have to stand to allegiance and declare, Caesar is Lord. But a whole bunch of Christians started to say something else, something subversive. They started to say, Jesus is Lord. Because he was, they knew that he was above political power and the opinion of man. I want to tell you today, maybe you here, sir, ma'am, and you've been saying, emotions are Lord because your life is being dictated by how you feel maybe today you're here you're saying actually my sin is Lord because I cannot resist it maybe you're here today and you're saying my relationships are Lord my finances are Lord my fears are Lord today in subversive reality we get to say afresh Jesus is Lord not with falsehood but with truth saying you are supreme and you are sufficient if you're today and you're here and you've never done that or maybe you've run away from Jesus and you've been running away today is the day to come back sir ma'am don't leave it another day don't walk out of here holding your own trailer let it go and allow his blood to cover every page of your life if that's you I'd like to invite you in the simplicity of this moment to hold up your hand just so I know how to pray for you can you raise your hand thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you Father, right now, as hands go up, it's symbolic. We know that hands going up don't save us. Jesus' blood does. But as we lift our hands, it's us humbling ourselves, saying, Jesus, I need you, and I bow my knee to you. I thank you, Father God, right now in this moment, that we, a part of us bowing our knees is turning our back on our sin, turning our back on our anxieties, our fears, the things that have held us captive, the things that have been Lord in our lives, and we make you Lord. Father, I thank you that these people, first time or hundredth time, I thank you, Father God, you take the, the throne of their lives afresh. And Spirit of God, would you wash them clean, restore to them the joy of their salvation, restore to them the joy of their salvation, the joy of their salvation. You purchased us, men for God, and you died for the joy set before us. For you, I thank you, Jesus, right now you're redeeming sons and daughters to the purpose that you created them for, to live with you as supreme and sufficient above every page of their life. Thank you, Jesus. Can we all stand to our feet as we land? Just as I look across this room, I know there's people here who are mourning the death of their mum. I know. I know there's people here who are battling and fighting for their marriage. I know there's people here who are fighting addictions. People who are trying to work out thing of depression. People who are fighting for their kids. 
This is not preached into a vacuum. This is preached into the very reality. This is not ethereal. This is the only hope that you and I have. So today, as a people, can we lift our hands and surrender our hearts afresh to the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. I pray right now, Father God, into every single situation, every single life, every single thought life, every single uh, battle that is going on. I thank you, Jesus. You are enough. Jesus, you are enough. Would we turn away from any other pseudo form of salvation, any other pseudo form of medicating our pain and trust you, Jesus. Jesus, set the captives free. How to have joy in our prison is to know that he is faithful in the battle, but he's also faithful to see us through to victory. So we trust you, Jesus. Right now, I pray the blood of Jesus on the door frames of our life, the blood of Jesus on the secret pages that have been hidden and long closed. I pray the blood of Jesus into our futures. I thank you, Jesus. Your blood is supreme. It's sufficient. You're above all. You're before all. Our joy is not held by presidents, economies, jobs, friends, spouses, opinion of man. Our joy is held in the person of Jesus. Fill our hearts afresh with this Jesus like never before.